welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am so delighted to be sitting down with Laura Cathcart Robbins. I am so grateful that you could be on our episode today. Uh, well, Megan, it, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. And I'm so excited that we're able to have this conversation because we talked about it. We did. Yes. And, and now we've made it happen. Look at us. Uh, my listeners are used to hearing me um, say that I have stalked people online and that's how I got them to be on the podcast. But you and I have the backward story, which is we were at a Zibby retreat together. I actually got to hear you speak, which was extraordinary, and then learned about your book, which is also extraordinary, um, and then begged you to come on the podcast afterwards. So this is, yeah, it's really yeah. incredibly delightful. And I just finished... I just finished saying to you off mic um, that I just could not put your book stash down. You've been on the junket for it. It's gotten a lot of incredible press, which must be really validating. I just want to ask about that in general, because it is a wild thing to write the truth of your truth down on a page for anyone running through an airport to pick up and decide to know all the things about you. So I'm just curious where are you at right now? You know, having had so many people say, we love this book and knowing that they have the details of your story. Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's, it is very surreal to walk into a room of people who know you intimately, who you've never met. And I, I knew that going in, I've spoken to other memoirists. I've been going to writing conferences, you know, since 2016 and like just being a sponge and listening to everyone's stories. But I still wasn't really prepared for how it's, it's not jarring, but it's, it, it, it feels like, um, a warm bath that gets cold. <laughs> That's yeah. Not a good, like I come in like, and then people like know more and more and I have to adjust to, cause I'm, um, and I mean, this is a really interesting dichotomy, I guess I'm a very private person. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've always been a very private person. This I'm very vulnerable and intimate in the memoir. I don't hold anything back. No but I wouldn't talk to people that way. Exactly. Like I wouldn't meet someone and then tell them these types of details about my life. Yeah. So discussing them is different than actually having written it down. And, um, and so, you know, to go back to your question about having it out in the world and press, all I'm doing is talking to people about these things that I wrote, which are very intimate and vulnerable and, we're having these conversations and I found that it's better for me to just lean into that rather than try to kind of do a dance. And like, I just, I just need to be vulnerable and yeah. with the person who knows all this while I'm talking about it, because that's better than me being guarded in those conversations. It doesn't make sense to the listener or to the viewer. If I'm, if I'm not giving everything when I've given everything up already. It's like, you know, wearing white to your wedding with three babies already. <laughs> we know, yep. we know. Yep. So, um, so that's, it's, it's been extraordinary. Um, you know, I also, I have a background as a publicist yeah. and I went in there and I've been grinding on that, on the publicity front uh, for almost, not almost a year, for at least six months though. 
on on my own, making those inroads, making those connections, and calling on some of my old contacts to, can you, would you, is this, do you still work here? Do you have any connections and figuring all that stuff out? Yeah. I mean, that it's a business, right? And so there's the, the thing that I think is so interesting about memoir writers and writing a memoir in general is that there's the element of why do we write the book even to begin with? And I want to, I, I do want to ask you about that. Um, but, but there's the, then what do we owe the book and the process of writing it? And what do we owe the readers and who are, who are still in the story and curious and rooting for the protagonists and all that stuff. And I think, um, you know, it's not a spoiler alert. Your book is called Stash. You you are sober, and that is part of the work of the book. And I f- was thinking a lot about memoirists who I have spoken to who become really dysregulated, myself probably included, in the difference between I wrote this for myself, it's me and my editor, maybe me, my editor, and my publisher. And then all of a sudden, there's a point in the book writing process where like suddenly there's a whole bunch of other eyes on the book, right? And then all of a sudden it's being consumed by maybe a table of people. And for me, that felt like my skin had been lit on fire from the inside. Um, I don't know that I wanted people to like it. I just wanted it all to be okay. I wanted it to be okay that I had put all these words down and no one could tell me that. And so all the work that I've done in trauma which is not the same as sobriety work, but I would say it's all kind of inter. I was like, wow, I don't know how a person could do this sort of publishing and exposure stuff if you didn't have a whole series of tools. Yeah. Kind of keeping yourself in it and regulated. So I would love for you, one of the questions I always ask on this podcast is sort of like, how do you come into the world of grief and loss? And I think your book is every page. Um, I think it's a, I think the entire book is a story about grief. Yes. And so I'd love for you to just sort of like let our, without all, you know, giving spoilers, but Mm -hmm. let our listeners know what the book is and sort of what the grief story is that you're laying out for us. Yeah. I want to talk about that. I, I want to just touch on something that you mentioned about the difference between trauma work and sobriety. And I think very much the work in recovery, not just sobriety, is really right. similar to the work that's done um, that that you probably do, and that has been done with me regarding yeah. trauma. Um, they're they're very parallel, and there are so many bridges between those two things. Um, can, you, can you tell us the difference? Can you? I, I would love for you to say that to the world because there are going to be people who are like, "Wait a second, that's the right. first time I've heard those two distinctly stripped." So- for for me, um, so I'm 15 years sober this summer, right? That means I have been abstinent from drugs and alcohol um, for these 15 years. Yep. That abstinence is fantastic and it's important. I would not have been able to do the other work that I do without it. That's right. However, um, I am not just abstinent. I am in recovery. For me, that meant going back to see the causes and conditions as to why I drank and used in the first place. And even prior to drinking and using, why I wasn't able to be my authentic self, where that started and what that looked like for me when I started editing myself. Mm -hmm. Um, The difference between surviving my childhood 
and surviving as an adult person was much different for me. I, I needed certain tools yeah. um, to survive my childhood. Those tools later became weapons as an adult to keep people away. And so me putting down everything and taking a, an honest look at it and to see, do I need this anymore? Is this a weapon or a tool? Because my brain is like reptilian, it's survival mode. That's what addiction is, it's, it's survival mode. And so for me to really look at that and, and not just to stay sober, not just to stay abstinent, but to really have a life worth living, um, a life that where I get serenity and peace and not in a boring way, but like in a drama free way yeah. and, and how, how a life with choices that I can actually make choices. My choices are no longer informed by my addiction or by that, that reptilian desire to survive. And so those are the differences and the work, um, you know, that I do in recovery or that I've done in recovery to get to the place that I am now. And it's the more right now it's more maintenance work. Yeah. I even hesitate to call it work now because it doesn't feel like that to me anymore. It just feels like my life, yeah. you know, the meditation, the, the 12 step meetings that I go to therapy, those things are just part of my life. They don't really feel like work, but it, they definitely did at first. And at first they were really hard, um, you know, looking at those things and admitting um, where, where the trying to omit or relinquish blame um, either for myself or for the people that had harmed me when I was, when I was growing up and a young adult and, um, and just really looking at it through a lens of how can I grow closer to the woman I want to be yeah. regardless of all this stuff, how can I do this? And then looking at that stuff and seeing what I could let go. So, um, that's my, my definition of that. It's such a gorgeous answer and I appreciate it. And I think the, um, you know, a lot of what, a lot of the work that, that I talk about in, in trauma recovery, particularly when it's early childhood stuff, exactly as you just described it, which is you come up with a childhood way of functioning through impossible situations that no longer suit an adult. Yes. But until you sort of do the integrity work of saying this, this little child was doing the best they could, this is, you know, you don't have agency as a child. You don't, there's not an option to just leave this environment. So the choices that then you have as an adult, I could leave this environment are stitched in with all of the, but this is the protective measure that yes. I put together and, and, you know, drugs, alcohol, all of the addictions are just one of those things that we can develop. Yeah. And, you know, there's predisposition and all of, all of the long history and legacy. And I, I would say, you tell me if this is wrong, that your book stash, that a lot of it is showing us what it takes to get to that early sobriety piece. Yes. This yeah. is, this is a book about that. Um, it, there's not much, it's about a 10 month period during the year 2008. And, um, at the beginning of the book, I have this big medical emergency and afterwards I decide to ask for a divorce. Um, and, and so, the like the kind of container for the book is the divorce. It's bookended with um what what happens during the divorce. But it, that's really almost the background story. Yeah. Um the other two stories are my desire to be a mom and to be in my kids' lives. 
um, and this addiction that I'm battling that's in the way of both of those things. It's in the way of me either being in my marriage or ending my marriage with dignity. And it's in the way of me staying in my children's lives, whatever that looks like. And so the grief that you asked me about, um, I mean, it is, this is a book about grief. There is this tremendous grief um, that I feel for needing to change the structure of my family. And, you know, this was a, back in the old days, this was a time when, um, you know, I was, I was a a mom in my thirties and um, a young mom in my thirties. And, you know, at the time that the book was written, I was 40. I mean, the time that I write about, I was 43, but even still, like all the moms I knew from school, all my, all the parents of my kids' friends, they were all still married. And no one was getting divorced. No one was even talking about it in this environment where I lived in Los Angeles and Hollywood and this very elite private school system, not a system, just a private school. I was also in a leadership position at this school. I was the parent association president, and I had just been asked to join the board of trustees. And my ex-husband and I were really this kind of model couple, um, and I'll tell you something, I actually haven't told anybody this, but I just, I, I have an, um, an iPhone and it said that the iPhone photo stream will shut down on July 26th. Like it's been sending me these warnings and I don't know what the iPhone photo stream is. Right. Anyway, so I looked, it said it won't be if, um, if you have it saved to the cloud. So I looked on all your devices. So I was looking and I found this video mm. that was taken by my older son. Um, in the backseat of the Escalade that we owned. And it's right in the middle of this book. It's in May of 2008. Wow. And he's filming his, his dad and me talking in the front seat. He films his little brother. He films Beverly Hills, which is where we're driving. Yeah. And we're having the most normal, lovely conversation, he and I. It is just you would never have known. Like I'm stunned watching it because I'm like, was it really as normal looking as I thought it was? And this is interior. This is just the four of us. Yeah. So my point is that I was hiding this, 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 I was hiding the fact that we were ending our marriage. Um, Even in the context of just our, our nuclear family, the two of us and our kids. Yeah. We were acting like everything was normal. And I was, you know, incredibly addicted to Ambien, which is something that most people don't get addicted to. It doesn't really matter what I was addicted to, but I was addicted to Ambien. The point is for that, that the addiction, I was drowning in it. Um, So I was grieving my marriage, looking different, my family looking different. You know, when we went through with the divorce, I didn't know what that would look like. And I really didn't want it to change. I wanted us to stay the same. I just didn't, you know, I didn't think we could be married anymore. And obviously that's, that's impossible. We couldn't stay exactly the same. Um, Although more people now are keeping like the same, the family home. Um, They have like different apartments within the family home. Where the kids. Yeah. 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 I think I would have liked something like that, but that wasn't what we did. And um, we didn't even know that was possible then. And then I was grieving, you know, I was barreling toward the end of this, this, like I was going to basically crash into a wall with this addiction. If my addiction was a moving train, 
Um, It was headed for a stone wall and I was going to either have to get off or be obliterated. And I was grieving both those choices. I didn't want to get off. I didn't want to say goodbye to the thing that allowed me to show up for my family for so many years because I felt like it did. I felt like my pills allowed me to show up for my family. And I also didn't want to die, which is where that would be the obliteration. So I had grief with both of those things. I was also very much grieving the type of mom that I'd hoped to be for my kids. You know, I, I had, I wasn't prepared. Like I, I, I'm not like a kid person. I hadn't like really spent time with kids. I wasn't the babysitter girl. I don't particularly like children just because they're kids. I do like some children, um, but I don't like, oh, kids. Like I'm not, I was never kind of, you know, um, just, I wasn't, I wasn't that person who thought this is what I want to be a mom. Yeah. I never thought that. I thought maybe a mom among other things, but not what I want to be. And when I had my kids, I fell completely and madly in love with them. And I was desperate to be the kind of mom they deserved in this addiction and, and my marriage, honestly, were pulling me further and further away from that. There's, there are just so many threads inside your book that I think are really masterfully done. And one balance, I have some chills when I'm saying this, cause I, I really can't think of another book where I, where I'm like, wow, this, this really shines through is, you know, you, you let us know, even though you say in your, in your illness, like, it's not really that big a deal. You show us that it is a big deal that you are dying from this illness, right? You paint that picture for us really clearly. And you show us how much you are fighting to have a life. And that those two things come together, that that one thing that isn't present is a whole lot of like fighting or nastiness between you and your ex-husband. And you say multiple times in the book, you know, it looks this way. There's, when you go to treatment, you go in a private jet. You are able to write that in a way that is not off-putting. We're, we're still rooting for you, those of us who aren't in private jets. And so the consternation about your, what, why your marriage can no longer exist really shines that it's because you are not that person mm-hmm. that you constructed not, not, not at all, but that you constructed of a, a person, a version of a wife to be, to be in this marriage that cannot hold, particularly because the way she lives her life is many, many pills that are killing her. Yes. And so there is this beautiful, like we are rooting for the Phoenix version of whatever this is going to be for you right? Like the, the recovery process is a reclamation of, you know, you show us some really beautiful scenes when you're younger, where you're a firecracker, you're a fighter and you are not going to sublimate your personality and you're not going to go underneath. But, you know, most of us, I think most of us women at some point have seen what the code looks like and what the uniform looks like. And we stuff ourselves into it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just this really gorgeous um, way of showing that the prison that you're inside really is yourself. And yeah. you you do not really, even though you say it in some sentences that you want to blame people, you really do a beautiful job of showing us it just doesn't work. I can't live like this. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. I'm, 
Right. So congratulations on that because I've read, read a million memoirs and it is a high wire act that you give us Hmm. sort of show us that there, this isn't about things that were done to you. Although there were things that it isn't about how people treated you terribly, although you were treated terribly, it really is about no longer being able to, the best word I can come up with is sublimate the parts of you that want to be really alive and thriving. Yeah. Wow. That, thank you. No one's ever said that to me before. And I did, I worked really hard at that. I worked really hard at showing you, giving you the real on what I was thinking in those moments and not sugarcoating that and not popping out as 2020 Laura to say, but I know that it was blah, blah, blah. But I want to show you exactly how it felt for me, how how resentful I was, how angry I was, how full of self-hatred I was, how all these things, but also show you what it looked like outside of me at that time. And outside of me, what was going on inside and outside were two very different things most of the time. Um, you know, I still have friends that are, you know, people are picking up this book um, who knew me then, and they are just like gobsmacked. Yeah, they really are. They don't understand. But we played tennis that whole year. Like, I don't get it. And I'm like, I that's the whole point. <laughs> I was good at hiding it, you know? And it is, it's to again, you know, like I said that earlier, to remove blame um was really like, you know, removing, I don't know, something, an anvil. <laughs> like it it was steps and pieces and then finally getting it into some a vehicle where I could move it away it was it was tough and you know I I do think that my departure from my authentic self um that's what I hear you talking about that began when I was when I was a little kid um because you know I I lived in a violent home yeah um and the physical violence was never directed toward me, but the, you know, the emotional violence, the yelling, the walls being punched around me, like that kind of thing. It felt like living in a war zone to me. Like my body responded like that. Yeah. Me being something other than me would quiet that house down. Yeah. Me being quieter, less of a firecracker, less of an opinionated little girl, less of a question asker would quiet down that house and therefore quiet down my nervous system. Yeah. And so that's what I learned to do. Don't be as much you, right? And you're safe. Yeah. Which then, I mean, I sort of think I I work with a lot of women who are sort of like headed right into their fifties and there's a lot of things, whether they have addiction issues or trauma history, there's a lot of stuff where they're like, I just can't do this shit like this anymore. Like mm-hmm. I'm too old. There's, I, I can't, doesn't work. I don't have, I can't like stuff my feet into the high heels or button the high waisted pants. Like I can't, my body, I'm not doing it to my body anymore. So I, again, I, I think that resonates really. Um, you, you just, you tell us just enough. And I want to ask about the experience of having friends and family read it. Mm-hmm. and reflect to you, shit, I really didn't know because I have had similar experiences and I sort of put my book in people's hands and say like, you, this is going to impact you because you cared about me at this time. And you are, and I've had more than one person be like, no, I was there. I know. 
And I'm like, okay, go ahead and read it. And I'm just curious, um, what, what is it like for you when people say, oh, but we played tennis? Like, is that an okay answer or does that hurt? Did that hurt to it, know? No, it doesn't hurt. It, it, um, it, I understand the shock. Yes. Those moments that they have known me for yeah. 30 years. Yeah. And, and, and. I think it's important to note that because I was a mom during this time, I went to treatment during the summer. Yeah. If I had gone during the school year, it would have been a much That'd bigger deal. Well. Yeah. But we had, we had taken a vacation <laughs> um, in early June and then there was the 4th of July and then I went and then I was back in August well before school started in time to assume my parent association yeah. duties so it's like I jump, you know, I hit the ground running when I got back. I didn't really miss a step, um, which, you know, it was whatever it was. I want to say it was a blessing. I don't know if that's true. It, I just, it just would have been different. Otherwise. Yeah. But, yeah. but so it really allowed me to keep the, the secret of it. Yeah. You know, because even though I, I got sober in treatment, it was still a, a, a yeah. shameful thing for me. I didn't want people to know. Yeah. I don't want people to know any of it. Um, and so, yes, I, I, what I felt and what I feel sometimes is that's an amends I probably needed to make. You because take I hid so much of me from you that's that you, you had no idea. Yeah. Tell me about writing. Tell me about choosing to write the book and, and when did that come about? When did you... Um, because you do talk about even, even as a teenager, sort of knowing that you have this writer inside of you. And yes. I teach some classes. I teach them with Zibby about process to product, like writing for process, writing to get your story out. There's some neuroscience about how we carry our story. Um, and then there's the product, which is more about my story being shared, you know, stitching it sort of spiritually together with your stories that we can all feel like we are held. Yeah. Part, part of this book really is the story of a black woman who is often in a more white tilting world. And I think when you have talked about this book, that is, I believe is part of the motivation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so all that's right. I love process to product. I just wrote it down <laughs> while you were talking so I can remember that. Yeah. Um, I might have to take that, that class. Um, we love it. It's a, it's, yeah. you know, I, it's trauma informed. So for people yes. who have a really hard time, just being able to say their story, I went to inpatient treatment after my mom died suddenly for PTSD symptoms. So a lot of your inpatient chapters just resonated so much with me Yes, um, in a way I really appreciated, but I couldn't even say the words, my mom died. I could write them, but I couldn't say them. Mm. And so the writing and the, and the processing of just, that is the truth of my life yeah. was really important to me. So when I came out of that, I just sort of created this titrated way of like, let's just get the story out as messy as it needs to be with all the hard words, all the, all the emotion. And then if you're, you know, you want to share it with someone, we can polish it up and make sure that it, it does the job of conveying itself to other people. Right. I love that. I love that. And, and, and thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. 
I can't wait to read your book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I was always a reader writer, um, you know, basically no formal education. I dropped out of school in the 10th grade and I didn't, I say I dropped out in the 10th grade. I really didn't even go to 10th grade. So it was really a ninth grade education that I got and I never went to college, but I, I've read voraciously since I was a little kid, um, books that were not age appropriate, um, from the gate, like Gogol and Dostoevsky and, oh my God. Um, these were the books my mother read to me that I would then later pick up and read to myself because I loved them. A tree grows in Brooklyn, the good earth. I'm like, these were, these were the worlds I lived in and I, the bluest eye and I would, um, they're, they're in front of me. I'm looking at them. Oh yeah. Yeah. You've got <laughs> right, your bookshelf. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and I always wrote, I wrote, I annotated my books before I knew that word, you know, I wrote in the margins and. Yeah. Um, I would, I would write, I wrote stories. Um, I was first published at age 10 in Ebony Junior Magazine. I won a third place in a story contest. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. I got a framed certificate. Well, it was a certificate and then my mother framed it and hung it in my room. And so that's how I've always navigated the world. After I got sober, I lost the ability to read and write for pleasure almost immediately. And I thought at first, like, that's okay. Like I have work to do. So maybe this would be a distraction. I'm just going to focus on being a mom and, and getting some recovery under my belt. Um, But about five years in, I started to get worried. So I started to take classes and I took a bunch of classes. I I called that my formal education because I went to like UCLA extension. I took, you know, just writing classes anywhere I could find to force myself to write it still. I still wasn't writing for pleasure, but I was writing. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I started to get a flow back. And in 2018, you know, I, I decided to get serious about writing something. I did not want to write this book. Yeah. I wanted to write about, you know, a coming of age story or something's memoir, but yeah. another chapter of my life. And, you know, the the rejections I got from my book proposal, one particular agent like zeroed in on the year 2008. And she goes, I think this is the meat of your book. And I was like, Fuck. <laughs> I'm right <laughs> about not this. what I wanted you to say. It probably is right. But yes. I, but and, it's a good reminder that rejection sometimes is a, you know, oh, it's, it's a gentle, you yes. know, honing, a bringing. And really that's what memoir, I have learned memoir is, is not just telling all of the stories of all of the moments, but instead sort of circling in on, a, you know, a snapshot that has a story to tell. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to write about this for a, a number of reasons, but, you know, it is, it was the hardest year of my life. I've never had a year harder than this one. Yeah. Um, it was the, the year in, I, I, there was so much grief and endurance and, enduring rather not endurance um well endurance too but yeah yeah both um, both is right but i was not living that year and i was existing and not at not at a level that i i could i can even like i don't know how i did it i really don't know how i how yeah. i survived that year yeah. and um also when i was going through that year i looked for books like yeah. mine and I couldn't find any. So I thought, I don't want to write that because no one's checking for that story. Obviously, 
because there aren't any books written from that intersection of race and privilege and addiction. Yeah. And and so I I thought I would write something that more people would want to read about. That was my intention. But when she said that, I did zero in on that year. Um, and you know, my my story is that I I wrote 30 pages on a query because HarperCollins had po- posted on Instagram in the summer of 2020 that they were would take submissions from unagented black authors. God, amazing. For it until September 8th. It was their response to the cultural reckoning that was happening. I didn't have 30 pages or the query, but I got busy. I wrote all summer. I got those Good. 30 pages in that query. I got right. Yeah. I got to it. And um, what happened was when I submitted it, I got the automatic response that you want to see because it knows they got your submission or you know that they got your submission. But um, this one said, thank you for your fiction submission. No other genres will be considered. And I, my stomach dropped because, of course, mine was a memoir and I just hadn't read the post thoroughly enough. Yet. So my friend, Holly Whitaker, who wrote the book, Quit Like a Woman, she's one of my dearest friends. She read those 30 pages um, a couple months later. She sent them to her her agent um, on a Saturday. Um, her agent signed me on Tuesday and said, how quickly can you get this written? So that was the journey from not being able to write or read for pleasure anymore to um, getting an agent. And then in, in October of 2021, she sold my completed manuscript because I completed it in six months. The I started in November of 2020, ended in April of 2021. In October of 2021, she sold it at auction um, mm-hmm. to Atria Simon and & Schuster and that was that. You know what I love? I mean, I love everything about that, but, but you're saying a couple of things and and one of those pieces really is in the book. And I wanted to highlight it, which is like that you really do have a high hustle that is, you know, that your, your threshold for working really hard, um, is super, you know, it's one of the things I think that you lean on. And again, when you're reading an addiction memoir and people come in with whatever it is that they believe about addiction, including, you know, I've worked with lots of people who are struggling with addiction and they have their own ideas about what it means to be an addict. And I'm like, that's fine. You get sober and you get into recovery and you will understand that like, you probably only want to work with people in recovery because they wake up every day with kind of more integrity and honesty about the world than other people would ever require of themselves for even one day. But you do have also a whole bunch of stuff that looks like grace Mm. moments in your life where, and I, and I have chills saying this again, where, where it kind of feels like the world is hoping something with you. Like is trying to co-create something glorious with you. Moments where your kids walk in, when you're maybe going to make a different choice or someone comes and sits with you or it's in the car with you so that the parts of you that need containing, that need better parenting, that need better guiding and, and curfews and support that you maybe didn't have. And the book process, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of these questions. I get a lot of these questions and I am always sort of loath to answer them because I can't explain how I ended up writing a memoir, except that there was all this magic inside of it. What I can explain is all the work I did with the writing and what the writing was for, which was my healing. I didn't want to talk after my experience with my mother's death. I didn't as a talk therapist, I didn't want to talk, 
but the writing felt very like holy to me. And in a little bit like that, you know, that Irish poem, like it felt like the road, the road rose to meet me when, when I was more okay. Right. When it was more about when it went from my process into, I think this could maybe tell someone something. Mm. Right. And it, so it just feels, I love that answer. And I hear it all the time, which is I wrote the book that I needed. Right. Yeah. Because like yeah. the bread, it's, it's Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs. Like I, you know, I just want to, I don't want somebody to get lost in the woods. I, mm-hmm. I want them to have. So what has the response been like? What for people who aren't your friends and family, people who you are meeting out there in the world, what is that like for you to take this thing that, you know, you worked so hard on and hand it out there and say, I'm hoping this is going to help you. How has, how has the response been? Um, I guess I just, Megan, I really love the way you talk. You're such a good <laughs> storyteller. <laughs> I'm forgetting to like cue up my response because I'm so engaged in what you're saying. Um, it just, I just want to just go back to the writing just really quickly. I just want to say I had the best time writing this book. It was the most fun I've had, just like pure fun for six months in 15 years. And I've had fun. I've had fun times, but it's been like a day or two here or there. I had six months of fun, even though some of the pieces, passages were tough. Some of the chapters were tough. Recalling and getting back into my body to feel like what that was like was tough, but I still had fun doing that. Like what bring, do you mean by fun? Make help me with what does okay, that? Okay, so fun meaning you that joyous. you look like you are <laughs> talking about joy. And how can a book about how you nearly died from addiction writing yes. in six months, which for people who don't know, that is a that is a breakneck speed to write yes. a book. Yes. So yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's why I like to say it because I think that, and I know that people have obviously a variety of experiences writing about these things. It may not be fun, but yeah. I had fun writing this. And I think, um, you know, one of the reasons I had fun writing it was because I can write and talk about it without re-traumatizing myself. That's right. If if I was in that place, it would not have been fun. It would have been a much different experience. I have a, I have a, a good deal of distance from it. Yeah. So it almost feels like I'm writing about somebody else. Yeah. Um, I also had fun, you know, like, interrogating my memory, looking at my diaries and looking at photo albums and, you know, going down memory lane. Like I thought that was fun, but the fun, the joy of it was that I I wake up every morning. I meditate. um, Mm -hmm. I make Scott's coffee. I put three ice cubes in it, wait for it to brew, bring it up to him because he's still in bed. I work out. I either ride or I do strength training five days a week. And then after that, I'm like rubbing my hands together. I can't wait to get to the computer because the story has been writing in my head since I stopped writing the night before and I got to get it out. And it's just such a pleasurable process for me. I love getting it out on paper. I love when it clicks. I love when it's good, when it gels together and it's succinct. And I've, I've done what I set out to do for that chapter like I can feel the way the reader's going to respond to it because they're going to see this, but then they're going to want to know this. And then I'm giving it to them here. And it's just, it's like a puzzle for me, you know, and, and I do like puzzles, um, but I don't do the jigsaw puzzles very much, but I do like puzzles. Yeah. But this, this 
this is my puzzle. Putting these things together is so gratifying. Yeah. And I knocked off at, you know, I wrote from 11 to seven, five days a week when I wrote this book and I knocked off at seven reluctantly. You know, I didn't sit in front of a a blank page. I just didn't. I was always raring to go. So it was fun. That's what was fun. Well, I relate to that. I I mean, not, I I think, I think when I was writing my memoir, I was still in trauma. Certainly there were pieces where like, I couldn't get my memories to shake it out. It was still new. But one thing that I, that I had on my list to, to ask you about mostly because I'm deeply curious about it. I think that most memoirs are stories of grief and loss, whether or not that's how they're presented. And I think there is an element of forgiveness inside all of them. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I was thinking when you were talking about it being fun, like what, what popped into my mind was like, oh, I think you must have self-forgiveness which is a little different than compassion for yourself because I think, or empathy for yourself, like, oh, that is the me that went through it. But I think when, I, I think forgiveness is really when the pain has dropped out of something, yeah. when when the, when the pain floor drops out and the story is just the story and you yeah. look at it and say, I survived that story. I did that thing. So I'm just curious about that. Does that resonate? It it does. It's, it's I hadn't ever thought about it like that. So thank you for framing it that way. You know, I, I absolutely won when I was newly sober, all I did, I held myself accountable for all of it. And, you know, I felt like I was responsible for all of it, all the bad stuff that had happened. I felt like it was me and it, it felt like, like I was bad. Yeah. Bad mom, bad wife, bad daughter, bad friend. And so the, you know, really looking at, at what, you know, my setup was my foundation, the scaffolding for, for everything that I went through. Um, it's still, I'm still forgiving myself. Yeah. Some of it. I think what is really helpful for me is that my ex-husband and I have a good relationship, um, that my kids and I are super close and, you know, throughout their lives, since I've got sober, I've left the door open for questions. I've asked them, if they have questions or anything that they want to talk about, we've had conversations. We had one when this book came out. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, yeah, well, I, I had to, I didn't have to. I chose to, before it went to first pass, say, do you want to read it? Because here's what it's about. And if you're uncomfortable with anything in there, I'm, I'm going to take it out. Yeah. I'm not going to publish anything that you're uncomfortable with. And um, and, and they were lovely. They didn't want me to take anything out. They're super proud of yeah. me and the book and, you know, like texting it to their friends, proud, like that kind of thing, watching me on TV, you know, wherever they are to make sure that they see it. And, you know, and, and then with my friends and my parents, I have a, I have good relationships. I don't have red in my ledger with anyone right now. That's if amazing. I did, I think it would be more difficult to find that self-forgiveness. Yeah. No, but I think it would be. But because I don't, um, I I was able to really turn inward and say, yes, you are responsible for this, but but you're not a bad person because of it. You know, so you can forgive yourself, even though you're responsible for it. One of the things that you write about so beautifully, like right up until the end, um, I think is 
exactly what you're describing about, which is like wanting and needing to take responsibility. But also there is like this white hot anger that is, you know, like a poker underneath things, which I really love. Like I really loved that. And, and sometimes you do it in italics. There's like yes. what's happening. And then you're like, you know, you're, which is just a beautiful mech, you know, it's a great writer's mechanism. I loved it. Um, but one of the things I I'm thinking about as you're talking about it is, is that, you know, I'm, I think you illustrate it really well with the lawyers, that mm. the lawyers are lawyers, right? And there's money on the table and they have had their experiences with contentious people doing terrible things to each other. And that is how they're advising you. And that is how we assume your ex-husband is being advised at the same time. And you sort of hate your lawyer. Yes. And right, you love her and she means well, but she's like a parent who doesn't really understand you. And, and right at the end of the book, again, I don't want to give spoilers, like you just come into this place of self-trust, which again, it just feels like it's part of the story of, of the forgiveness or the acceptance or the yielding, but also the reclamation mm -hmm. of really like the, the pain of these things is I am the person who is responsible to me. And then the auxiliary, but to me first, and from the moment we, you, you show us when you get into this lawyer's office, it's like, oh, I don't know if this is going to go right for her. And <laughs> part of what you show us is you don't do any of what she tells you to do. She's yeah. like, don't do this, 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 and this. It will be very bad for you, Laura, if you do this, 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 or this. And you're like, uh-huh. And <laughs> all of those things. And at first you don't tell her. There's like pages and chapters where you're like, mm, should I tell her? I'm not going to tell her. And then inevitably you have to tell her she loses her mind. Again, it has this like parent relationship to it where she's, she's just exasperated with you. But as we come to sort of the close of this section, it could only ever be the way that you yeah. needed it to be. It doesn't matter if she has all of this legal wisdom, that's not right. And I just thought, sort of buttressing, like you sort of open the book with the idea of getting divorced and you close the book with, you know, the, they're the bookends. Mm -hmm. It is this really powerful moment of like, that is how you come into this trust with yourself. Yeah. Just like not to follow the advice of these, you know, very expensive, <laughs> you know, consultants that you have hired and you create your own way forward, which, which I think really, when we're talking about recovery and we're talking about being a woman and we're talking about being, you know, a person of color, when we're talking about being a minority or somebody who is disabled, that's, that's always the truth mm -hmm. that you have to find your own way forward. Yeah. And I think that is both terrifying and awful and kind of glorious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, she and I had, two different definitions of success. What a successful divorce would look like for me, according to me, was yeah. different than what a successful divorce looked like, according to her. And, um, and, and you're absolutely right. There is this kind of, you know, the path I'm on is the path to trusting myself. And I needed her. Yeah. I needed her for a variety of reasons. And, and then I needed myself. Yeah. Um, and I could rely on myself by the end. I could rely on myself 
And I, you know, and I, I, I did that a few times during the book where I was just like, no, I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> I just, I mean, again, it's like this little feisty, you know, like she looks like she's sitting at the front of the class doing the English assignment, yeah. but she's got a whole other interior world going on. And I just, it, it's so, it's such a lovable part. It's such a lovable part of you that you let us see. And just a reminder that like nobody outside of you has your own answers. Yeah, They can only ever come from inside of you. And I think again, without using like heavy jargony language or going deep into therapeutic, you know, processes, you just show us that. Mm. So yeah, just so beautifully. So I want to circle back before I let you go to the question I asked a while ago, which is like, what is it like now to be at a distance from this part of the story? Are you, um, are you enjoying a different life than what we see as this ends? Is it all an arc of, you know, into recovery? Are there big chapters that people would, you know, there's going to be three more memoirs in this series and people aren't going to, aren't going to believe what's going on. Oh gosh. I, I would love to write three more memoirs about, um, this series in this series. I, I'm definitely, not my next book, but the book I I want to write after this one, I want it to be the sequel to yeah. this because it was Good. such a dramatic year that followed yeah. and so many big things happened. And I just don't see people writing about the kind of re-entry um, into the world after you've put down a substance for good or put down a substance. And, and the, for me, I just, I felt like, you know, I barely remember that year. I had to go back and like, look at the same kind of data that I looked at before and things started falling into place. Um, And, and, you know, what it's like to have it out in the world now is, is really, you know, I was, I was saying to you before we started recording, I walking into a room where everybody knows my story as a private person has been quite the adjustment. Yeah. Um, and, and yet there are people like you mentioned earlier, who I have never met, may never meet, who have read my book and written me to say, thank you. You told my story. I've never seen my story told by a woman of color. I've never seen, and, and, and not even a woman of color, just like people, men, yeah. um, people who identify as men, people who non-binary, like people are connecting with the feelings in the book, people who have no experience with addiction are connecting with it. People who are going through, I get a lot of people who are going through divorces at the end of their marriages. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it is such a trauma. And I think when you're in those traumas, it really, it doesn't matter if you're surrounded by your extended family of 30, you're the one in the trauma. And so when someone is writing a memoir, one of the gifts, I think, of people writing their stories from their own point of view is that you're, you are inside, you know, they're driving the bus and you're looking through their eyes. Yeah. And so it is extraordinary to me, the number of books that I've read where I'm like, this content has nothing to do with me, but the emotional experience is making me feel so seen and understood because, you know, no human is out there inventing an emotional experience. Like we're, right. you know, that's what stitches us all together, but writers and great writers like you are that are able to communicate it in a way that just brings me in and says like, welcome, sit here. You're, you're this is where you belong is really, 
it's just really extraordinary. So I absolutely hope that second book happens. And I do think you're right. I think there is, I think maybe just like publishers say like, well, if you don't have 275,000 followers, you'll never get a you know publisher, an agent or whatever. And then that's not what happens. People write books. I think there is also this like, well, if there isn't some dramatic story in the memoir, like people won't want to read it or buy it. But I actually think there, is, there aren't very many stories about living in recovery. There's a lot of stories about getting sober. Yes. Right. Because that's like climbing Everest. But like, yeah. what is it like to just walk through the woods on a normal day and be oh. a person? Right. right. And yeah. still be terrified. Yeah. Still be terrified. Maybe even more terrified because you don't have a buffer now that's or right. the buffer that you used to have. So, yeah, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to write that um, and to put that out into the world. Tell people how to stay in touch and abreast yeah. of all the things that are going on and do a little um, description. I didn't mention it, that you are also a podcaster with a wildly successful podcast, but, you know, just on the side, her little side yeah. gig along with all the other things. So tell folks about that. Yeah. So um, the podcast is called The Only One in the Room. It's it's uh, an idea that sprang out of my experience at Brave Magic, which is Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strade's retreat, um, two of my literary sheroes. And I went to this um, retreat in 20, 2018, and there were 600 people. I was the only Black one there, including the folks that worked there. I kept looking for them like in the kitchen or like anybody, groundskeepers, but there were no other Black people there. I had a fabulous time, but I also very much felt of course. I was aware of my blackness the whole time. I wrote about it for the Huffington Post. It was my first viral article. It was my first published article. And it, it was like the, it was my biggest article to date. It was like, I've never had an article hit more than this. And um, it's so that article, a lot of the responses came back, hashtag the only one in the room. So that's what I decided to call the podcast. And instead of just telling the stories of Black women um, who find themselves to be the only one in the room, I decided to base the stories of my responses, which were from people of all ages, races, abilities, disabilities, ethnicities, et cetera, who knew what it was like to feel alone in a room full of people. They connected with that, even if they weren't Black or of color or marginalized. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those are the stories we tell on the podcast. Um we're going to have a month um, where we talk about infertility that's coming up. There's a month where we talk about recovery that's also coming up. Um, we don't always do themes, but th this is what's yeah. coming up for us. But it, it can be anything. We have a, a guest coming up who is the only above the knee double, double amputee to finish the Ironman. Talk uh, about a very specific description. Right. Well, apparently above the knee amputee is a really big deal when you're looking at that and you're talking about sports because he doesn't have that knee joint. It's fantastic. The episode. So those are just the type of episodes we talked. Anyone who's ever felt like they're alone in a room full of people, we tell their stories on the podcast. That is amazing. What, what I, I love how it all comes, you know, comes together again. I said it before. I think there's some magic in your story. Magic can also be spirituality, call it whatever you want, but something that is being co-created. It's you're making, you're doing all your hard work and all your hard effort. And someone is sort of passing a teacup. And I just love the idea that your podcast is named after your yeah. viral. It makes me think of Maggie Smith's gorgeous viral poem. You can make this place beautiful on her. That's the last yeah. line of the poem of good bones. And that's the name of her incredible memoir, which I just ordered. 
Oh my God. It's so good. I did a podcast episode with her talk about the most generous genius. Uh, I mean, it, was hard, it was hard for me to, I mean, your book is so good. I couldn't put it down. Her book is so unbelievably beautiful, written, beautifully written by a poet. I like almost couldn't look at her in the face. I was like, uh, I don't even know how to use quotation marks. Okay. You are such an unbelievable. <laughs> oh my I am goodness. so grateful for this hour. I'm so grateful yes. that we got this together and I just, congratulations on this incredible book. I really, really loved it. I'm going to say this for the purpose of um, the listeners who already know this, that I will have a bunch of copies of this. So if for some reason you can't get it at your library or you can't afford it, get in touch with me through the website and we will send you a, a copy of the book because we want you to have it um, because we love it and believe in it. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.